Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It's a question that everyone asks at some point when they're growing up. Where do babies come from? And we all kind of know the answer, at least as far as we remember the details from biology class. But for thousands of years, ordinary people, scientists, they had no idea where babies came from. I mean, they knew that people had sex, and they knew that sometimes babies resulted from that. But how? They couldn't really say. People like Isaac Newton and Leonardo da Vinci, who changed science, who were great thinkers, they would have been shocked by what an elementary school kid in 2017 could tell them about where babies come from. Edward Dalnick is author of the new book, The Seeds of Life, which charts this centuries-long quest to understand how new people are made and why it took us so long to figure it out. And we should say, there will be some discussion of sex here, which is probably not too surprising to you. Edward, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much. So I mentioned uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who drew these very detailed pictures of people having sex, of a woman's womb. And he was obviously very interested in what was going on, how this happened. Can you give me a sense of like, in the 1400s, what was he getting right and what was he getting wrong? Well, um, both, in, in both categories. He was an astonishing genius. It's around 1500 when he gets fascinated with the human body. Um, he's doing these studies of anatomy at the same time as he's painting the Mona Lisa. Um, to study bodies in those days, you first had to get a body, and that wasn't easy. You had to de- make a deal with uh, with a hangman to slip mm. you a corpse or, or something like this. So it's gruesome work, and you're you're working away in the dark and the cold because you don't want to be doing this uh, in, in summer's heat. Right. And, and Leonardo's a squeamish fellow besides, so he's cutting these bodies open, uh, trying to work up his nerve and seeing what he can find. Um, And and some of what he sees uh, makes sense to him, and some of his drawings uh, just just show things that that just weren't so. When he he did make a famous cutaway drawing of a man and woman having sex, so this is from his imagination because you would have needed, uh, first of all, a living couple and then some kind of MRI X-ray scan or something. Or right? something. He's, <laughs> right. He, he's, he's drawing like their internal organs while this is happening, right? So, yeah, he couldn't have seen it. No, he didn't see it, but it shows what he thought you would see. Mm-hmm. And what he thought you would see includes the various bits that we know, but also some strange things that aren't there. There was a tube in the man, he thought, that ran down your spinal column. It carried semen from the brain uh, down to the man's penis. This tube doesn't exist. And in women, uh, Leonardo didn't draw ovaries. He didn't know there were such things. Mm. Um, But on the other hand, he did put in some things that aren't there. He had uh, an imaginary tube for women, too. This one went from uterus to breasts um, because there was a half-baked or not even half theory about menstrual blood was somehow converted to mother's milk mm. and it would pass through this uh, through this passageway is how it happened. Well, it's interesting about the issue of um, the mother's milk and menstruation because 
in some ways, people were trying to find explanations for things they knew to be true. Like, for example, you know, um, when women are nursing, they don't get their period, but nobody understood how that was happening. So, as you said, there was this thought of, like, maybe blood is becoming milk. Is that Could that be happening? One of the things to bear in mind is that these are all smart people right. trying to figure out what's genuinely a mystery. Uh, now that we know the answer, uh, it's easy for us to say, oh, of course. But if, if you try to imagine yourself back to not knowing, mm-hmm. I mean, it really is quite strange that from a bit of huffing and puffing several months ago, there comes to be <laughs> a new human being in the world. It's, we all know it happens, but it is kind of an amazing thing. Right. Okay, so let's fast forward to the 1600s. There's a guy named William Harvey, who you write about. He was very friendly uh, with the English king, Charles I. Um, and he was super fascinated with this question of where babies come from. Like, how does this happen? He investigated extensively. So, you know, bring me up to the 1600s here. What did he think and how did he go about trying to figure this out? So Harvey's a great hero in the history of medicine and in his own mind as well. He's he's a vain (laughs) fellow. Um, It's Harvey who's figured out that the heart is a pump, a a giant advance in medicine. And now he's on to the next greatest thing. He's going to be the one who explains uh, conception and development, how babies come to be, or at least this is his plan. But you can't study human beings directly, and so he decides he will look at animals. And because he's pals with the king, as you say, and the king is a big hunter, there are all sorts of deer around to be looked at. So the king and uh, Harvey go out one day. They go out in uh, mating season for deer. They wait for deer to mate. Now uh, Harvey rushes over, and they choose a deer that they will sacrifice and cut her open, and they'll look in her womb, and they'll see, Harvey believes, some glistening embryo that he'll flick out into the sunlight, and this will be the first step in, in solving this mystery. And he cuts the deer open, and then steam rises into the cold air, and the king crowds round, and the king's deer men peek over over Harvey's shoulders to see what's going on. And they look and they look, but they don't see anything to their astonishment. They can't figure it out. That on the one hand, there has to be something tangible there, because there will soon be a new deer born. But on the other hand, there's nothing, and they can't sort out that mystery. It's so interesting that, like, the king isn't on this. That The king is also, you know, I don't know if he was normally into science, but he's also like, yeah, what's going on here? How does the scientific process work? And he is actually out on these hunts trying to figure it out. Well, well, Charles was was a smart and curious fellow, but this was not an abstract question like what are the orbits of planets. Mm-hmm. This was a question that nearly everyone had wondered about at some time or other. Where does new life come from? How does it come to be? There must have been things, though, that were confusing. Like, for example, why did some people have sex but not have children? Or why did some people have sex and have twins? Like, how how did things happen? I mean, I know what you're saying, like, they knew in general about a sort of general rule. But there were things that didn't fit that rule that must have confused people. They confused people like mad. And what you would do is make up some kind of, of uh, folklore explanation of it. So to do with fertility and infertility, say, there was every kind of theory that you would have babies if you went to bed at the time of a full moon or Mm. a new moon Mm. or early in the day or late in the day Mm. or facing to the north Mm. or while a breeze blew in the scent of (laughs) lavender or if you had eaten some particular food Mm -hmm. or maybe not even a food. Uh, In Italy, they thought if you ate rose petals, 
Uh, that was a, a good way to, to get pregnant. Hmm. I can't remember. It was either red roses brought boys and white brought girls or vice versa. Hmm. But, but all kinds of theories like this, people doing their best to come up with, with the patterns to explain these, these odd features of right. everyday life. Right. And twins, did people have thoughts on where twins came from? Twins were a huge mystery, and once again, there was there was every kind of theory. One was that, uh, well, this this is uh, lustful couples who have gone to bed twice uh, right away, <laughs> or a particularly potent male. Every, every kind of guesswork, and I should say, because it's an important part of this story, that in the 1600s, 1700s, and all the millennia before that, virtually every scientist asking about babies in life was male. And mm. not only male, but a male who took for granted that men were pretty great <laughs> and women weren't up to much. And so when you were trying to solve this particular mystery, to write off half the population was, was a formula for trouble. So when you say they assumed men were pretty great, did that say to them that basically um, the, the baby-making process was basically about men? Do you know what I mean? The woman was carrying it, but... That was just like, you know, a technicality. What, what these male scientists said explicitly was that if you were to look at any creative product whatsoever, a poem or a house or a tool or, or a piece of pottery, that was made by some male artist. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was the way the world worked. Mm -hmm. Now, when you looked at the greatest and most elaborate creation of all, a new human being, it stood to reason they all insisted, that that too would right. be the creation of a male. Right, right. And the woman's role in this uh, would be, as you say, to, to nurture that, mm -hmm. that seed that the, that the male had, had created and mm -hmm. planted. Mm -hmm. uh, you have this great uh, line in the book about, I mean, in the 1600s, 1700s, you really got a scientific revolution underway. And people are learning all this stuff about physics, about astronomy, about calculus. And then you have this great quote, the bold men of science raced off to take on the mystery of life and promptly face-planted. <laughs> Did people who thought, well, we're unlocking the mysteries of the universe, surely we can figure this out. It's all around us. You know, did they think this is totally doable? That, that's exactly how it went. And that's what got me into this book, in fact. I had written earlier about Isaac Newton and Galileo and people like this. And they had solved all these cosmic mysteries mm -hmm. about comets and suns and planets. And those are, are remote things and ones you can't touch because they're so far off. And now they thought they would turn their attention to bugs and babies and plants and butterflies. And this would be easy. Oh, right. They were, they right. were going to rack up one more big triumph just in the same line that they'd already done. Right. And they were astonished to find that, that planets were easy and plants were hard. They, they had no idea it would be that way. Right. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Edward Dalnick, author of the book The Seeds of Life, about how we finally came to understand where babies come from. It may have been not super hard. Um, you know, I, I don't want to characterize it, but it, it was obviously doable to make advances in calculus and physics and astronomy and so on. But a lot of those things did not come without the pushback of the church and religious authorities. And I just wonder... Where does religion factor into this whole question that scientists had been pursuing for hundreds of years of where babies came from? 
religion played a giant part in this story. Um, it played a big part in the in the astronomy and physics story too. Uh, we know from Galileo, but there religion mostly helped actually because the scientists all believed that God was a mathematician, and it turned out for reasons nobody understands quite to this day that the inanimate world really does follow mathematical laws. The mm. comets do trace perfect ellipses, and gravity does follow an equation that you can write down mm. in a few lines. But now when it came to biology, they had this same belief that everything uh, was designed by God, the creator. And now it, when they turned to life, that made for all kinds of trouble. Mm. For one thing, God was not only the creator, all these scientists believed, but he was the only creator. And so that simple observation made for giant trouble, because if God was the only creator, how could it be that ordinary men and women were creating hmm. life? That was God's work. How could that be? And to come up with an answer to that question, they invented what was taken to be the deepest wisdom for centuries, but to us sounds like the most outlandish answer possible. What they said is, well, God is the only creator. It's not when, when a man and woman today think they're creating life, they're kidding themselves. They're really not. What happened was God created all life at the beginning with Adam and Eve, and he, then he put all the people who would ever live inside Adam or inside Eve. There huh. was a big fight Just little, little mini versions of them. Little mini versions like Russian dolls. And within each mini <laughs> me was, an, was a minier one and yeah, a minier one. Yeah. Everybody who had ever lived all in Adam or in Eve. And it was a big battle. They called themselves Ovis and Spermis. Who, who, was it Adam <laughs> or was it Eve who had all those Russian dolls? But that's how they wriggled out of this um, God, the only creator business. And for them, this was an absolutely urgent question. It wasn't a silly thing or a spinoff. This was the first thing you had to answer. Who's doing the creating here? Okay, so you know we've been through, I mean, thousands of years of human history. People have not answered this. When would you say the really big breakthroughs started coming? Well, it takes until the late 1800s uh, for this story to be resolved. One of the first big breakthroughs was earlier than that. Uh, Leeuwenhoek, his name is a Dutchman, looks through a microscope, the first microscope. He's the first to have seen these new micro worlds, and he looks through at, at drops of pond water and rainwater and blood and scrapings from his teeth, everything you can think of, and he sees all these creatures no one has ever suspected. Yeah, they're not what people thought they were, as simple as people thought they were, like pond water or whatever. People had thought that water would be just water right, because... Right. With this notion of, of God, the perfect creator, having made everything in the world, why would God have bothered to create things that people can't see? Mm -hmm. Because people are the point of it all. Mm -hmm. that, that was the notion. At any rate, Leeuwenhoek invents the microscope. He's thrilled with it. He's looking at everything. He goes to bed with his wife one night. He jumps up. Uh, he tells us proudly. He goes running over <laughs> to his microscope, holding this goopy semen sample. He looks at it under the microscope. Uh, we don't know what Mrs. Lewinhoek is saying uh, <laughs> uh, at this time. He looks through uh, his microscope at the semen, and there he sees what no one has ever seen before, these little swimming tadpole creatures. Mm -hmm. And now he's thrilled because people and he have been trying to figure out where new life comes from, where babies come from. And now to see these vigorous swimming things, they certainly seem alive. It seems like a giant clue. This is around 1700, and he's almost got it. And then he looks some more, and he thinks some more, and he says, you know, on second thought, 
That can't be right, because whenever I look at anything at pond water or at rainwater, I always see lots of little things swimming around in it. So these things that a minute ago I was saying must have to do with life, I, I must have had it wrong. Actually, they must be just another kind of parasite, hmm. although this one has chosen a peculiar place to live. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, it sounds like it, much in the way that astronomy you know, depended on the tools of astronomy, that, you know, until you had microscopes, until you had certain things that allowed you to see very, very small, you know, eggs and sperm and stuff, it, it was hard to imagine that those things had inside them what they do have inside them. New tools are, are a giant part of the story. Uh, the microscope coming along is really, really important. This is a story that hinges on sperm and egg. Uh, an egg is just at the limit of what you could see with your naked eye if you were had good fortune. It's about the size of the dot over a typed letter I. Hmm. But but it's, it's the biggest cell in the body. But the sperm is the smallest cell in the hmm. body. So, so the ratio in weight of an egg to a sperm cell that fertilizes it is a million to one. Wow. It's the difference between wow. a, a Thanksgiving turkey and a housefly. So it's a, no wonder that they were so hard to find. So... Who then was the first person who really knew? Because you said Leeuwenhoek looked and he thought, maybe sperm are part of life. Oh, no, maybe they're not. So who was the first person who realized, no, a sperm meets an egg and this is the beginning and it implants and, you know, like had the first sense of this is what really definitively happens and they were right about it. So that comes late. This is 1875. There's a... a grouchy German scientist that no one has ever heard of named uh, Oscar Hartwig, who was working in a, uh, in a lab in, in Naples, Italy. Uh, they were studying sea urchins, uh, not because of any particular fascination with sea urchins, but sea urchins happen to have big eggs and they're easy to gather and they're transparent. You can see inside them, like looking at a construction site uh, through a peephole. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you have experimental subjects at the end of the day, they're also delicious. Uh, this, this was also... That <laughs> Just also a side a benefit, yeah. <laughs> but, but all the scientists in the lab had discovered that side benefit. At any rate, Hartwig one day is looking through his microscope at one of these transparent sea urchin eggs, and he pushes a sea urchin sperm cell near it, and now the nucleus of that uh, sperm cell makes its way somehow inside the, the egg, and one nucleus swims towards the other, Hartwick is watching this, and then they meet, and he's he's the first one to have ever seen that, huh. and he catches on now that ah, it's not that the sperm cell is is a parasite or or something like that. It, it's it's part of or, mm -hmm. or the the precursor of what's going to be a new organism. That's what's going on. And when he told people, did scientists immediately believe him? Um, did the general public immediately uh, immediately believe him? I just wonder. Like, how much resistance there was amongst any community? Well, there, there was some resistance, but this was an experiment that could be done, uh, could be repeated. You could mm -hmm. watch it, and if you, if you kept your eyes on it, you could see these cells, and mm -hmm. the word cell was new. You could see them divide. One of the great mysteries at this time was, on the one hand, everything in the world is made out of just stuff, coffee cups and you and me and dogs and cats. They're mm -hmm. all made of, of bits of... of pieces of, of things. But on the other hand, some of those things, like the dogs and cats, run around and bark. And, and so the question was, is it just stuff or do you have to add some magical ingredient that springs the stuff to life? What's right. the difference between a coffee cup 
and a baby. Yeah. Um, and now with this Hartwig, with this fellow looking through the microscope, it seemed that if you had regular stuff, but in a particular arrangement, then that's what life was. It was a complex arrangement of the same old stuff. It wasn't that you needed magical building blocks. Do you think that this discovery has anything to teach scientists now who are still trying to figure out certain kinds of mysteries about the universe? Is there anything to learn from literally thousands of years spent trying to figure out where babies came from? Well, there's a lot to learn. Um, one thing to learn is that um, we, we look back on our forebears and we say, uh, how silly of them, taking ourselves as, as the end of the line right, of progress. Right, right. We, we always think, each generation thinks that the escalator comes to our floor, and there it stops. <laughs> That's but, right. But That's, we're, we've achieved perfection now. <laughs> but we're guaranteed that things that some things, we don't know which... Um, and that's the beauty of it. We're guaranteed that future generations will look back on us and say how silly of them. Mm-hmm. And one likely example, you think, is is uh, is consciousness, ideas. We don't understand now where ideas come from. Where do hopes and dreams come from? We know that there's that the brain is a physical thing, and somehow that physical thing gives rise to our hopes and our ambitions. Mm-hmm. But we don't know how to bridge the gap. How does that happen? And our forebears in this baby story understood that you start with men and women and, and tissues and fluids, and somehow you you end up with life. But they couldn't figure out how does that happen? How mm-hmm. does it come to be? Mm-hmm. And perhaps there's some notion akin to player pianos, some analogy, some some model that that we're not capable of of seeing right, yet right. that will resolve this. And maybe in the future, uh, 10-year-olds will know where right. ideas come from. <laughs> right, right. Edward Dolnick is the author most recently of the book, The Seeds of Life. Edward, thank you so much for being here. Well, my pleasure. Thanks very much. We've got more on the search for where babies come from. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. 